<clears throat> Turn, please, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. On finding that, please, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and I pray uh, that you would rule over it, that it would find its uh, perfect work in us, that as you have promised, though your thoughts aren't our thoughts, your ways are ways, still you have promised that your word would triumph. And I pray that it does. In Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Um, We come to this passage in these these, uh, days of Advent. uh, Quite honestly, first it's in the Bible. And so that gives us uh, cause to pause and to consider it. So that's uh, reason enough. But it's about Christ. Uh, this is psalm is understood, was understood in the days of Jesus, is about the Messiah. And so it's, it's a psalm concerning Christ. Thus, as we come to this season of the year, this Advent time, uh, it's helpful as well. But also, it flows really out of the Gospel of Mark, where we considered uh, last Sunday from Mark in chapter 12. Jesus quotes the first uh, verse of this psalm in relationship to him. You remember the issue was his authority. And he comes now saying his authority is as certainly David's son, but more than David's son, uh, David's Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, this is a psalm of David, Yahweh said to the Lord of David, the one who was the Lord of David, who indeed would sit on the very throne of God, sit at the right hand of God and rule and reign. And thus, that's the authority of Jesus. Uh, We walked ourselves through last Sunday a number of different psalms where David was explaining and showing this one, this Christ who was to come, that he would be the son in Psalm 2 and he would be installed as a king on God's holy hill and he would have the nations for his inheritance. And we wonder, who could this be? And Psalm 24 tells us it must be the Lord Almighty. He's the only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord because he's the one who has purity, clean hands, and a pure heart. And the good news for us is when this great king ascends this hill to take his seat, to take his throne, to rule and to reign, he doesn't come empty-handed, but Psalm 68 tells us that he comes with captives, those that he has brought with him to to be with him and to be with him forever. And so uh, now we come to Psalm 110 and we realize this very one, this Christ, is the Lord. And he sits and he rules and he And he reigns, this one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that before Jesus came that he wasn't ruling as God. He certainly was. He's eternal. And so he was ruling before, but his rule before his coming, his rule before his incarnation, his rule before he came, was to make certain that his coming 
would be at just the right time. That everything would be perfectly prepared for his coming. So everything before the coming of Christ was ruled over by God in such a way that the coming of Christ would be at the perfect time. That everything was ready for it. So even before Christ, everything was for him. And then in the coming of Christ, of course, he comes, he lives perfect life. He dies taking the sin of sinners upon himself. He rises from the dead. In all of that, the scripture says, he made purification for our sins. Upon making purification for our sins, after which he ascends and sits. He sits in the sense that he's done making purifications for sin. That's done. And now he sits as a king sits on a throne. He sits to rule and to reign over his whole work. He rules and reigns so that everything that he accomplished on the cross will come to fruition. Nothing can now defeat him because all his enemies, in that sense, everything that was keeping him from fulfilling all of his promises have been dealt with by making purification for sin. So now he rules and reigns. But he rules and reigns, the scripture says, here it is, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that's a curious thing. That's a curious thing, you see, to have him rule and reign in the midst of his enemies. Most kings, if I were going to be king, uh, and I've tried, but if I were going to be king, I would eliminate my enemies, and I would only rule in a realm where everyone there was my subject. I mean, I, I, that seems to me to be the job description of a king. Expel your enemies so that everybody who's there, and if you're the king of England, you want to rule over the citizens of England. And if they're not, they need to leave. If they aren't, they need to become. And so that's the realm in which you want to rule. But this says that this one who's installed as king, who sits at the right hand of God in power and authority and honor, is one who does so in the midst of his enemies. Now, turn quickly to give you a very brief tour of the book of Revelation. Very quick. We're not going to make any money on this. I can't write a book. No novels coming out of this. Just a uh, just very quick look. The book, because we shouldn't be surprised in a sense, especially now that we've read the whole Bible, we shouldn't be surprised that Christ rules in the midst of his enemies. I mean, that's the, the sense in which we get from all of the Bible. That makes sense to us. It's odd, but it makes sense that Christ is going to rule in the midst of his enemies. We understand, it seems to me, I understand quite well the whole notion of depravity and wickedness apart from God. And I understand, at least in my mind, perfection in heaven. It's this middle area that's the problem. If Christ is ruling and reigning, why is there still sin? If Christ is ruling and reigning, why is there still death? If Christ is ruling and reigning, why is there still injustice? If Christ is ruling and reigning, you're with me on this. You understand the difficulty with us thinking like that. Theologians have a little expression. Like most theological expressions, it's only moderately helpful. The theological expression, talking about the coming of Christ, saying it's really the already slash... Not yet. We made a lot of money with that one, I'm sure, and got published. But, but what the meaning by that is that, yes, Christ has come, and the kingdom of God is here, 
but not in its fullness, not as it will be. It's as if the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, begun, and all that is necessary for it to continue and succeed is accomplished. But now it needs to work that through. Now it needs to live that through. There's a sense in which, you know, at the inauguration of a president, he's been elected and everything for the fulfilling of his promises should be ready to go. Uh, but it isn't yet fulfilled. It's already here, his presidency. But he's got to walk out the days. And so on the one hand, it is certainly true that we are, as believers, adopted into the family of God, but yet our inheritance in its fullness is still to come. Yes, we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, yet we'll still die and we still sin till glory. It's already, but not quite yet. One great local theologian calls this the great gray swamp of sanctification, the great gray swamp of this in-between time. And that's how it, it, it feels to us, you see. But it shouldn't surprise us because we see that Jesus ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies. Now, the first chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation show Jesus walking amongst his churches. His churches are established. I won't read those, but his churches are established. But he's walking amidst his churches, and yet there are enemies that abound. And he's telling these churches, don't give in, don't give in, don't give in. Be conquerors, be overcomers, be triumphant in the midst of this. Don't give in to these enemies, they'll try. In fact, in some cities, he says, this is the very place where Satan has his throne. But don't give in, don't give in, don't give in. Chapter 5 is a second vision, part of a second vision in the book of Revelation, describing what life is like now. Not simply in the future, but now. And chapter 4 shows God enthroned. Chapter 5, let me just read it. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and seated with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept, and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and open its seven seals. And so we know who that is. That's Jesus. And he's triumphed by way of the cross, and now he's at the right hand of the Father, and now history, from that point on, is about to be opened. But who can open it? Who can rule over history? Who can rule over what is to come from the ascension of Jesus on? Who's to rule over this time? Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. That is, Jesus carrying the marks of his crucifixion. Standing in the center of the throne. There he is. The center of the throne ruling. Encircled by the four living creatures and elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Don't get bogged down in the details. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the Father. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders 
fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousands. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang... Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to the Lamb who sits on the throne and to, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Jesus ascends and he sits and when he sits... He's the one now who is worthy to rule over all that is to come. And these scrolls of history, if you will, and he opens them up. And the reason that he can rule over them is because he is the one who is worthy. And the reason he's the one who is worthy is because he was slain. And in his being slain, he purchased men for God. And so now as these scrolls are opened up, he's ruling and reigning over all that he had done and bringing it to fruition. That all of those for whom he died, all those he had purchased, will be saved. And nothing can stop it because of what he had done. Uh, difficulties arise, you can read chapter 6 through 11. And you'll find in the midst of history, as he rules and reigns over this, there are enemies. But in chapter 12, uh, God, for John, the apostle, sort of opens again this veil to show a bit deeper into what is going on and, and describes the scene. Verse 1, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. And his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. You getting this? Uh, this child's going to be born, this dragon is wanting to devour him, to keep him from living. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God into his throne. That's a real quick history of the life of Jesus. Okay? He was born, you know, because... When we read through the revelation of John, we find a number of different visions telling us about the same thing. About the coming of Christ, and about life, and about the triumph of Christ in the end. With just little different nuances, little different twists. You find a number of judgment scenes in the book of Revelation. Why? Because... It isn't just one continuous story from this to judgment, but a number of different judgments, because we're learning about life under the rule of Christ, a number of different angles. And this, this just, just wants to get us into the story, wants to get us into this. Now notice, verse 6, The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Don't get hung up with the 1260 days. Uh, and there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. 
But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent. And just in case we're not getting the story, called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. He was sent out of this heavenly realm no longer to have any audience there at all. Then verse 10, Then I heard a, a, a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not live, uh, love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. So the very enemy of God, Satan himself, after the ascension of Christ, is defeated in one significant sense, but now angry. And so he pursues this church. And then he has a number of cohorts. In chapter 13, we see two of them. One is the beast out of the sea. The other is the beast out of the earth. And while these are difficult, I think, to pinpoint exactly the, the, the notion of what's going on here is fairly clear. Notice in chapter 13, the middle of verse 1, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven hands with ten crowns on his horns, and each on each head had a blasphemous name. This is not a friend. It's not a friend of God. It is one who blasphemes the very name of God. It is one who sets himself up over against God. Who makes himself out to be God. Thus he has all these crowns. Verse 4, men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast and they also worshipped the beast. And asked, who is like the beast who can make war against him? He continues in verse 6 to blaspheme God, to slander God's name. Verse 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, and language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world, an enemy. An enemy that sets himself up over against God. An enemy that comes and actually persecutes the people of God. Who makes war against them. Whose goal, whose desire is to lure them and hurt them. And to, to, to take away, if they can, uh, if he can, their very faith. Another beast coming out of the earth. He spoke, it says in verse 1, uh, like the dragon in verse 14, it says, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He's a deceiver. He's one later called a false prophet. He's one who, again, trying to lure us away from God. Enemies who have come. Enemies that are here. They work the same notion as Satan, these beasts. And then the final one that's listed is in chapter 18. Actually, I'm sorry, chapter 17 and 18. Simply known as the great prostitute. Verse, chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. Verse 3, middle of. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Whether they're sexual adulteries or spiritual adulteries, all which leading us away from God. Christ is ruling and reigning. Enemies to lure us away, to persecute us away, to deceive us, to seduce us. All away from God. I won't read the end. You know the end. He's triumphant at the end. But, but in the middle of all of this, he's ruling and reigning. And these enemies still exist. The, the classic formulation of these enemies is the world and the flesh and the devil. And then, of course, the very last enemy, death. So we do battle against Satan. He, the great one who, whose weapon is simply to say, you can be like God. He, the very one whose weapon is the very law of God, to say you've disobeyed, you've not obeyed, thus you're condemned. The flesh refers to, stands for that sinful inclination in us, that sinful nature in us, the thing which Paul describes in the letter to the Romans that makes us an enemy of God. It makes our minds hostile towards Him. We're disinclined. We have no inclination to follow God. Our minds are hostile to Him. And of course the world. It's that conglomeration, that, that aggregation of all these people of the sinful nature. All coming together. And its values are wrong. And then of course death. Which comes against us all now. The cross of Christ has defeated them all. The cross of Christ has won them all. For instance, turn to Hebrews in chapter 2 and verse 14. Hebrews 2.14 Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Notice that little word in the NIV anyway that is rendered destroy. It really means rendered powerless. That is to say destroyed his hold upon them. At this moment in time, as we speak, Satan isn't destroyed. He still exists. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion moving around seeking those whom he may devour, he still exists, but his hold over the power of death has been nullified because of the work of, of Christ. That was the purpose for which uh, Jesus came, for instance, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the scripture simply says that Jesus came, he came to destroy, that is to nullify, to render powerless the works of the devil. So, the cross defeats Satan. The cross defeats, if you will, the flesh. Turn to Romans and chapter 6, verse 6. I mean, do verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, 
we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self, that is the one that was controlled by the sinful nature, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That's that same word, destroyed. Rendered powerless, he goes on to say, to explain, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So the cross of Christ renders powerless Satan. Still around, but rendered powerless. The cross of Christ renders powerless the flesh, our sinful nature, for those, of course, for whom he died, for whom he did that work. And this is true as well for the world. Turn to Galatians in chapter 6. In verse 14. Paul says, May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world, all its wrong values, all its wrong incentives, all its wrong thinking, all its wrong motivations, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So you see, Christ came for people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, which is what Revelation 5 says. And he came to render powerless for those who were his, the devil, the flesh, and the world. And even conquered death. Turn to Second Timothy in chapter 1. And verse 10. Let me begin reading in the middle of verse 9. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our, our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Same word, destroyed, rendered powerless in our life. Are you going to die physically? Probably, unless Jesus comes back first. You're going to die physically, not probably, I suppose. Certainly, unless Christ comes back first. So in that sense, death still exists. But, for those upon whom this grace, before the beginning of time has come, death is rendered powerless. Its sting has been removed. Why? Because of the work of Christ. How? Because the sting of death is the law and judgment. But since Christ came and took the penalty for us, then the stinger of death is gone. So, death is no longer powerful in our lives. It has been nullified by the work of Christ. So, here's where we are. Christ has come and he has nullified, rendered powerless everything and anything by the cross that could possibly keep him from fulfilling his promises, which is to save his people from their sins. 
And so he did all that. And now what's he doing? He's ruling and reigning over that. So that all those for whom he rendered powerless Satan, the world, their flesh, and death, come to him. And the assurance is nothing can stop him. Why? Because he's sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. The, the scepter, verse 2 of Psalm 110, has been given to him by his father. Now, that's a cool thing, those scepters. Because they're rods of authority. They're, they're symbols of authority. But, but in the Bible, they even take on a bigger dimension than that. You remember Moses had a rod. And all he had to do with his rod is hold it over the Red Sea. And the Red Sea parted. So the authority of God, and the scepter, this, this rod. You might remember another occasion that the Israelites were doing battle and, and Moses went up on a hill to pray. And, and I think you, many of you know the story that when he held his hands up, the, 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 the army of Israel was victorious. When his hands fell down, they began to be defeated. And so uh, a couple of priests came and held his arms up. But what you mustn't miss in that story was that in his hand was the rod, the very authority of God. He says, oh, don't worry. All that Jesus nullified to keep his victory secure will be played out because he's ruling and reigning over that. Are there enemies? Yes. But they've been rendered powerless for those who are his, those for whom he died. Now, how's he rule? He's ascended. That this rule is a, is a spiritual rule. Um, it isn't a physical rule in the sense that Jesus is here present with us. We see him with our eyes. But it's a spiritual rule. Why? Because he's ascended and he sent who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to, to bring to us the very presence of Christ. You might remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was telling his disciples about the coming of the Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and he also said in the same breath, not only is the Holy Spirit going to come, but I'll never leave you, I'll be with you. Well, how's Jesus going to be with us when he's up there or wherever there is? By his Spirit. The Holy Spirit mediates, brings to us the very presence of Christ. Now notice that... In back, turn back to Psalm 110. Notice in verse 2, it says, The Lord will extend your might. I'll give you a second to get there. I'm sorry. I'm always one flip ahead of you. And I know that. Psalm 110, verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. This is God the Father speaking to the Son. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemy. Your troops that could be translated your people actually it's more literally translated your people NIV has editorialized there a bit because this is in the context of battle so it turned people into troops which is fine your troops will be willing on your day of battle arrayed in holy majesty See, listen you're going to rule in the midst of your enemies and you've got troops you've got people you see, and they're going to be arrayed in, in holy ma majesty. There's a sense in which, Jesus, you're going to rule by your spirit 
through these troops, through these people, and these are the ones who are willing. And you might say, well, how in the world are they going to be made willing when, because of sin, they were hostile? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the spiritual rule in the midst of the enemies. The Holy Spirit comes and he changes hearts. And he gives, we could a technical term for that is regeneration. He gives new life to people and makes them willing. If you're a believer in Christ, it means that the Holy Spirit has come and made you willing. There was a time when you weren't willing and now you're willing. What's the difference? the spiritual rule and reign of Christ that he changed your hearts because you see there's nothing to keep him from doing that he's overcome Satan he's overcome your flesh he's overcome the world and so he just comes he has every right to do that why? because he's got the rod he's got the scepter he's the one who rules and reigns and so he comes and he comes and he rules and reigns and makes you willing. And now he comes, you see, to rule and to reign in the midst of his enemies in the spiritual rule by the Holy Spirit through these willing troops. Now, what's the stock and trade of these willing troops? What are the weapons that these willing troops use to protect and to conquer in the midst of this land of enemies? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10 I just need a phrase you don't need to turn there and many of you know this phrase 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 for though we live in the world we do not wage war as the world does it says in a military fight it's a spiritual fight the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world on the contrary they these weapons have divine power they're spiritual divine power to demolish these strongholds so the weapons of our warfare are spiritual weapons they're the word of God they're the prayers of the people of God and then the very witness testimony of the people of God Jesus reigns in the midst of enemies you know it's the midst of enemies. You know these enemies. And you know that he rules and reigns because if you're a believer in Christ, you know that he's conquered your heart and he subdued these enemies for you on your behalf. And now he takes these willing troops, us, and he says, now go out and rule in the midst of these enemies. And while we're applying his word, while we're praying, while we're living out this life as witnesses of Christ, He's ruling and reigning in the midst of His enemies, bringing them to defeat through, through us. That's your life. It's sort of like, you know, when the CIA goes in somewhere. In fact, somebody said, yeah, that's what happens. It's us, Christ in action through us he's ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies oh, we don't see that throne but, but he's ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies and he's doing it by way of his word because the word of God is powerful it's always amazing to me as I read through the gospels I've had a great year reading through the gospel of Mark I don't know about you but it's been wonderful for me but, but reading through the gospels because I love the audacity of Jesus to look at a blind man and say see 
Look at a deaf person and say, hear. Look at a lame person and say, walk. Look at a tomb where a dead man is and say, rise. You know, I'm the lame guy. I'm saying, you see, that's my problem. I can't walk. <laughs> you know, you're asking me, commanding me to do something I can't. The blind guy saying, I don't think you understand, Jesus. I can't see. That's the problem. The deaf guy communicating, I can't hear. The dead guy, well, he just stays dead. But, but, but you know, the audacity of Jesus, what gives him the confidence to do that? Because he knows, because of who he is, his word is powerful. And thus we, as wielders of his word, need to understand that his word is powerful. It does, it brings that which isn't at the moment into being. That's what his word does. It brings life. That's why the psalmist can say, the law of the Lord revives the soul. The very word of God can take a, a soul that's discouraged and depressed, revive it. It can, can make us wise. It can take people like you and me and make us wiser than our enemies. Because it's the powerful word of God. It brings faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, by the word of God. It brings faith. Peter says that we're born again by the living, enduring word of God. It brings life. Do you realize that when we speak the truth in love, when we live the truth in love, it's powerful and it rules and reigns in the midst of the world. We need to understand that. If I didn't believe that, I could never preach. If I didn't believe that, I could never share my faith. If I didn't believe that the Word of God was powerful and if attended as He wills by His Spirit can bring life. Have you ever been in a situation where you're ministering to a person who's discouraged and you say, them to, say things to them like, God loves you. Do you have any confidence at all that that's going to help them? The only confidence we have is that God's word is powerful. And when we communicate, when we think it, when we communicate it, it brings faith. I tell a lost person that you know and I know are dead in their trespasses and sins, like we were, to believe, you go, you're fighting a losing battle. No, you're not. Not if. It's the word of God, which is Powerful. There are prayers of God's people. Powerful prayers. Ephesians 6, you know this passage. Ephesians 6, verse 17. The Apostle writes, In the midst of God ruling and reigning through us in the midst of His enemies, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There shouldn't be a period there. Really, change, you're not changing your Bible. You're just changing the NIV 
to be more like the New American Standard. <laughs> if you have an NIV. Um, I, I think it's that way in the New American Standard. It, it should be there too. But there shouldn't be a period there. It should, it should be, take the helmet of the salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying in the Spirit on all occasions. It's a participle. Praying. That is to say, when you take up the sword of the Spirit, be praying. Not only speak the truth, but, but pray to God that His, His Word is powerful. He says, pray too. Don't just do one or the other. Do both. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying. Take it up praying. That's why Paul prays in Romans 10 about the Israelites, that they might be saved. That's his heart's desire, that they might be saved. And so Paul says for them even to pray all kinds of prayers, and most especially to pray for him for boldness so that he can go out and speak this truth in love. In Luke 11, we read where Jesus is telling his people to ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and seek and keep on knocking. And he says, Why? He says, because you, fathers who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, will not God so much more give, this is what he says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. You want to, you want to rule and reign with Christ, you need the very Spirit of God, moment by moment, inch by inch. And then our witness. He calls us, you see, to go out and, and live it in the midst of these enemies. And as we do that, do you know what happens? They're defeated. It isn't a military war, it's a moral one. When we go out and we live love, for instance, last passage, Romans chapter 12. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't have time to read this passage, but it begins by having your mind transformed. And it moves then from a transformed mind to a life that loves. And then a life that loves because this person understands the will of God. And this life of love then overcomes evil. Evil doesn't overcome it. It overcomes evil because it doesn't give in to evil, because it doesn't become evil, because it lives out in the context of evil. Good. I was trying to illustrate this in my own mind at a quarter of five this morning. This is what came. You live in a country where slavery is the culture, you're a slave. An emancipator, a person comes and buys your freedom, sets you free, but the word hasn't come to you yet. The, the law that has kept you enslaved has been rendered powerless, but your slave owner isn't going to tell you. And thus you feel like, live like a slave. Yet the truth is, ownership of you has changed. Another now rules you. How does this new owner, in the midst of this slave owner and slave culture, get you and set you free? in your new experience in life. And he's got to come and get this information to you so that you'll know of your freedom. But that's not all. Let's say that once set free, you still must live geographically on your former slave owner's property. That is, while no longer still your slave owner, still he sees you every day and you see him. 
still he looks at you with that slave owner's look and he still screams at you with that slave owner's scream and still threatens you with slave owner threats and you live amidst other slaves who want you to return once again to be like them so they tell you how wonderful it is to be a slave for this particular master but you get messages you get messages from your owner don't listen to them you don't belong to them you belong to me meditate upon who I am they can't do anything more then make your life miserable. Trust me. What I say is truth. What I say really rules your life. Don't give in to them. Don't listen to them. Look at others I've set free and now rule. Look to them. They will help you see my truth. Live with them. And live like them. And your former owner can't get you back. And not only that, there are others I've set free that don't know it. That's why I've left you. Now, I can't exactly tell you who they are, but... Everything that once hindered them has been defeated. And upon hearing this word, they will be free. Tell them of me. Show them by your actions of me. That they will hear and see and come. There's nothing to hinder them. And not only that. You mustn't ever let those who still hate me think they rule. Think they won. I want you to live in such a way that is a constant reminder that their way is wrong and that I am the rightful king who rules. So I want you to, to defeat them by your living by faith in me, living by my word, living as my followers. It's not a military victory. It's a moral one. You shall show that my name is great and that I rule by my righteousness. You shall defeat them by testifying of me by your lips and lives. Speak to them the truth and love. Regardless of what they do, you do that which is right. Follow me. Love them. Overcome evil with good. That helps me. He does rule in the midst of his enemies. He rules and reigns through us by his word, through our prayers.